words, like, Ye raven flapped its wings three times, and on the third, it dropped its poop, which means we shan't go to war until the third month, which is the shittiest month. And what makes oracles unique compared to other mythological figures that we've talked about so far is that they survived well into recorded history. Like, we have written records of government officials making pilgrimages to the temples to ask about politics and war, as well as regular everyday Greeks wanting advice about their love life. We even know the process they use to trigger their enlightened state and receive the words of the gods. And I hope I don't have to say this, but I'm going to anyway. Don't try this at home. The oracle who operated out of Apollo's temple in Delphi, she was known as the Pythia, would first bathe in the Castalian Spring. Then she would drink from the sacred spring Casotis before descending into a basement cell in the temple. While in the basement, she would take a seat on a mounted sacred tripod and chew leaves of the laurel tree. Apollo's sacred tree. She would then enter an altered state of mind and speak words both sensically and nonsensically. The thing with oracles is that whoever visited them to ask a question never actually got to hear the answer for themselves. Instead, her words were written down and interpreted by the priests in a typically riddle-like state, similar to the ominous warning Percy got from the oracle. You shall go west and face the God who has turned and you shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned. We also see something similar happen in 300, but in that case, the priests had been bribed by the Persian army to prevent Leonidas from meeting the Persians in battle. As I've mentioned before though, oracles rarely deliver good news. We talked before about how Perseus's grandfather met with an oracle to learn why he couldn't conceive a son, and she replied with, don't worry about it. Your daughter's gonna have a son, and he's gonna kill ya. An oracle told Oedipus that he would kill his father and sleep with his mother, and he did. Atalanta was told that her husband would one day be her downfall, so she vowed to never get married, but she eventually did, and yup, right again. The couple made the mistake of hooking up on holy grounds and were turned into lions as punishment. This isn't to say that all oracle predictions came true. Obviously, that would be insane but we only remember the ones that do, and they were all pretty messed up. Before we move on to the next myth though, I do wanna shout out the sponsor who made this episode possible, Manta Sleep. Manta Sleep's mission is to empower light sleepers like myself to sleep better so we can live healthier lives and get more done. And they do this with their revolutionary sleep masks. What makes them so great compared to other sleep masks I've tried in the past is that other masks always leave little gaps for light to peek through, despite putting a ton of pressure on my eyelids and balls eyeballs. But Manta masks are infinitely adjustable thanks to the Velcro strap and their C-shaped eye cups surround your entire eye, giving you a true 100% blackout experience without holding your head in a vise. I can actually open my eyes all the way even with the mask on and I'm still in complete darkness even with the studio light blasting me in the face. Another huge perk is that these masks stay in place when you sleep on your side, which is the healthiest position for sleep. Manta Sleep also uses premium materials that are soft and breathable. They even have a silk mask which Lauren fell in love with the moment she put it on. Whether you're looking for that perfect night's sleep or more effective naps, these masks are a game changer and they have a diverse selection of models depending on the kind of sleeper you are. I went with the Pro, but I'm really curious about their sound mask, which comes with Bluetooth, and their weighted mask. To try Manta Sleep for yourself, just hit the link in the description and use code JOHNSOLO at checkout to get 10% off your order. 
Myth 2. Ermie's Flying Shoes Before Percy heads out on his quest, his buddy Luke gives him a parting gift, a pair of flying shoes which take the form of dope red chucks. Luke is the son of Ermes, the messenger god who also used a pair of flying shoes to travel from point A to point B as quickly as possible, so it's fitting he would have a pair of his own. I'm wondering if this was Ermes' gift to his son, similar to how Annabeth's hat was a gift from her mother. In order to use the flying ability, the wearer of the shoes must say the word Maya, which I initially assumed was Greek for fly or wings or something like that. But it turns out that's actually the name of Ermi's mother. Isn't that adorable? For those who aren't familiar, Maya is one of the Pleiades, who are the seven daughters of the Titan Atlas and the sea nymph Pleione. They were also nursemaids and teachers to the infant Dionysus, god of wine. According to the mythos, after their father was burdened with holding the heavens on his shoulders, the Pleiades felt so bad for him that they all committed suicide, and this made Zeus feel real guilty. So to make up for it, he turned them into the star cluster that we know today as the Pleiades. Disney fans might also appreciate that Maya makes an appearance in the original Mary Poppins book and goes Christmas shopping with Mary Poppins and the kids. It's a super random inclusion, but I guess the author, P.L. Travers, had an appreciation for Greek myth. Myth 3. Make like Athalia and Leaf. As the group leaves camp, Annabeth says some parting words to a tree, who it turns out is her friend Thalia. Thalia was a daughter of Zeus and was almost killed by monsters on her journey to Camp Half-Blood, but to spare her soul from going to the underworld, Zeus turned her into a tree. Thalia's fate bears some serious similarities to Daphne, the first love of Apollo. You see, one day Apollo was flexing a little too hard on Cupid, saying that he was a way better archer because his arrows could slay both monsters and men, so Cupid had to put him in his place. The little god of love said that his own arrows may not be deadly, but they're far more dangerous and powerful because even gods are helpless against the power of love. Then he showed Apollo exactly what he meant. He shot the god of sunlight with one of his gold-tipped arrows, which caused the recipient to have undying love for an individual of Cupid's choosing, which in this case was Daphne. But here's where things get twisted. He shot Daphne with a lead-tipped arrow, which caused absolute revulsion for whoever Cupid chose, who in this case was Apollo. So while Apollo was now madly in love with Daphne, Daphne wanted nothing to do with him, and when the god began pursuing her, she ran for her life. Cupid wasn't lying when he said that love was a powerful force though, because Apollo would not, could not, leave Daphne alone. She ran from him for hours to the point of pure exhaustion when she had to cry out for help from her father, the river god Peneus. When she stepped in Peneus's waters, he gave his daughter a way out by transforming her into a laurel tree, one of the few forms of life that a god couldn't have sex with. But that didn't stop Apollo from binding Daphne to him forever. In honor of his first love, he made the laurel his sacred plant. So in both stories, we have gods sparing their daughters from undesirable fates by turning them into trees. But you know, something tells me that isn't exactly what they had in mind when they cried out for help. Myth 4. M is for Medusa. Not long after leaving Camp Half-Blood, the trio winds up at Auntie M's Garden Gnome Emporium, 
which Annabeth realizes a little too quickly is codename for Medusa's lair. They join her inside for some lunch and to escape the wrath of Electo, and it's here that we're given a surprisingly accurate treatment of Medusa's story. So for those who don't know, in myth, Medusa was a priestess for Athena, who was seduced by Poseidon and subsequently punished by Athena for violating her sacred virginal vow. Athena curses Medusa with ugliness, transforming her hair into a nest of snakes and a gaze that could turn any man to stone. As a result, Medusa hid away in a cave in Libya along with her sisters, Stheno and Eurali, until Perseus showed up one day and cut her head off. What I appreciated about how Medusa told the story in the show is that she presented her curse as a gift, which is a modern-day interpretation that's grown more popular in recent years. Athena giving her snake-like features and a petrifying gaze meant that she could never be hurt by a man ever again. The gift the gods gave me is that I cannot be bullied anymore. But this is never mentioned by the ancient poets. Like Annabeth said, Athena cursed her. It was a punishment for breaking her sacred vow. But where things get really interesting is when you actually look at our ancient Greek and Roman sources for Medusa's story. You'll see that the only author who mentions Medusa's human form is the Roman poet Ovid. All the Greek writers, including Euripides and Hesiod, describe her as a monster born into a family of monsters. It wasn't until centuries later, during Ovid's time, that Medusa's story changed and then changed some more. She went from being a willing consort of Poseidon who laid with him in a meadow of flowers to an unwilling victim who was assaulted in a sacred temple because she didn't have the power to fight back. All this being said, I really appreciate that Riordan and Disney went with a blend of these versions for the show. Medusa says that Poseidon gave her adoration that Athena never had, and so she was lured into his arms. They do still play it like she's a victim by pointing out that Athena punished Medusa instead of Poseidon. But then Athena declared that I had embarrassed her and I needed to be punished. Not him. Me. But I think it's worth mentioning that gods rarely get to punish other gods in Greek mythology and there was no way that Athena would have had the authority to punish her uncle. There was a certain hierarchy on Olympus that had to be respected. It's that same hierarchy that allowed Hera to beat Artemis into submission with her own bow and left Artemis no choice but to run away crying. You can find that little exchange in Homer's Iliad. Anyway, in myth, Perseus uses Hades' invisibility helm and Hermes' flying shoes to quietly sneak up on Medusa and chop her head off but in the show, they basically do the opposite. Annabeth sneakily puts her invisibility cap on Medusa so Percy doesn't have to risk making eye contact with her. Then he uses his sword Riptide to send her head rolling. I wonder if she's sick of getting her head cut off at this point. Unlike Perseus in myth though, this Percy doesn't keep the head to use as a weapon. Instead, he sends it to Olympus and we're treated to a scene of Hermes delivering it personally. But with that, it's time for me to make like Thalia and leave. Get it? Because Thalia's a tree now? Our journey is not over yet though, mere mortals. This Monday, I'll be posting yet another episode to break down the myths in episode four, and every Monday following that until we finish out season one. I hope you continue tuning in and enjoying what this series has to offer. 
And with that in mind, be sure to sacrifice those five star and follow buttons to get new episodes delivered to your device every Monday and Friday. I'll speak with you again this Monday for more Percy Jackson, and then on Friday with a long-awaited, heavily requested deep dive into the messed up origins of Johnny Appleseed. Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first. Thank you.